In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue um, studying in the book of Romans. We started the book last week, um, just looking at an overview of the book, um, as well as chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, St. Paul gave a brief introduction, um, and he spoke about um, the, the, the natural law um, versus the law of Moses. One of the, the big themes that we're discussing here in the book of Romans, as we mentioned last time, um, had to do with the fact that in the, in the city of Rome, um, it was a city where there was um, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, um, and both of them kind of um, looked down at each other. So the, the, in the Roman church, um, the, the, the Gentiles, they uh, kind of saw themselves as superior to the Jewish Christians because the Jews are the ones who rejected Christ, whereas the Jews saw themselves as being superior to the Gentile Christians because they had received the law of Moses and they were the children of Abraham. Um, so a big emphasis in this book and that we're reading um, is St. Paul trying to explain to both of these groups that neither one of them is better than the other, but actually both are in need of salvation. And in addressing the Gentiles, he speaks about how even though they did not have the, um, the law of Moses, but they have the natural law, which is the, the, the law of God that's implanted in the hearts that, that is our conscience that directs us to what is good and what is evil. Um, and so this was a big emphasis in, in kind of the discussion and, and also what we're going to speak about this week, um, God willing. <coughs> so in chapter 2, God willing, we're going to cover chapters 2 and, and hopefully chapter 3 as well. <coughs> chapter 2, the main kind of theme is the is addressing the, the Jews specifically. So again, there's there's times where St. Paul is going to address the Jews, sometimes he's going to address the Gentiles, and sometimes he's going to address everyone. So here specifically, he's speaking about the, the Jews and the need of salvation for the Jews, despite the fact that they have the law of Moses, despite the fact that they are the children of Abraham, the necessity of salvation and the grace um, for specifically the Jews, so that the Jews do not have like a very haughty and lofty opinion of themselves, thinking that because they are the children of Abraham, that they are complete and that they are not in need of anything. Um, St. Paul is trying to show them that they, just as the Gentiles also, um, are separated from God, are in need of salvation. So he says, Therefore, you are an excusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Okay, so as I said, these two groups, right? The Jews were judging the Gentiles and essentially um, believing that the Jews were better than the Gentiles because, again, they had received the law and all these things. So St. Paul is addressing that the, the judgments that the Jewish Christians are making against the Gentiles is actually hypocritical because whatever sins uh, and condemnation that the Jews are making on the, the Gentile Christians, they themselves are practicing the same. They themselves are, have weaknesses, and so they have no footing to judge or claim that they are um, you know, better than, than the Gentiles. Okay? And even though the Jews are the ones who received the, the, the law and received the word of God in the Old Testament, they actually, as a people, rejected it. Right. As a people, the, the Jews rejected God and went after idol worshiping and which is why God condemned them. OK. And they were exiled. So the Jews have no like footing in order to argue that somehow the Gentile Christians are less than them because they did not receive the law. The Jews had this very ethnic, uh, religious, cultural belief 
that they were selected by God as being a unique people and that they were better than everyone else. And, and at the, the dawn of Christianity, there was this um, you know, readjustment that had to happen when the Jewish Christians realized that all the people, all of, all of the people um, in the world are equally eligible for salvation and that the Jewish people do not have any exalted status in the eyes of God. Okay, so they are instead having received this law, the Jews, instead of using it as a mirror for themselves to say, okay, well, what does the law say? And how is it that I should practice? What is it that I should do? What is it that I am doing wrong? Using this law that they had been given by God. Instead, they were using this law as like a weapon to condemn other people. Okay, and of course, we w it's easy for us to do the same. It's very easy for us to take whatever we are commanded and to redirect those commandments toward others and accuse them of disobeying God and not doing the right thing because they are offensive to us, because they are doing something to us, and, and ignoring ourselves, our own kind of um, responsibility to carry out and to live according to the law that God gave. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Okay, so St. Paul is reiterating that the law of God is true, the law of God is, the, is the, the standard of God, including the moral standard of God, and that God does not, you know, does not condone sinful behavior. He's not trying to say that, well, it's not a big deal, um, and you should just be accepting of whatever it is the Gentiles are doing, and it's not a big deal. He's not saying that. He's saying God does condemn the, the sinful and wrong actions. This is the truth. And he is not trying to show favoritism to any particular group, whether it's a Jewish group or Gentile group or, or whatever it might be. Okay, Christians are judged according to the same law as non-Christians. The law of God is equal and impartial and judges everyone the same. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Like a very clear message of hypocrisy, saying you Jewish Christians who are judging the Gentiles and believing that you are better than them, even though you are committing the same sins that they are committing, do you think that you are going to escape the judgment of God? Are you caring so much about your own judgment and your own understanding that you have forgotten that actually we all of us are going to be judged by God himself and God does not see things in the same way that we do? God does not judge one particular culture or one particular group, but he judges each individual regardless of culture and regardless of what group affiliation that they have. So, so St. Paul is wanting the Jews to see this that they are acting hypocritically, okay? St. John Chrysostom, he says the following. He says, this reflects the logic of the apostle who seems to proclaim, you judge the adulterer while you commit the same sin. Do you not condemn yourself at the same time, even though no one has judged you? If you punish someone who has committed a lesser sin than yours, then how would God not condemn you for your acts and indict you for your harshness? especially that you have brought condemnation on yourself by your own acts. He's saying maybe even we are judging people who are doing less than what we are doing, and yet we are offering them no mercy and no forgiveness, and we believe ourselves to be better than, than them. I want to make a distinction be, you know, between the, the difference between weakness and hypocrisy, because sometimes we, we confuse these together. What is hypocrisy and what is weakness? Someone who is a hypocrite, is a person who does not even want to try 
or makes no attempt to try to live by the standard that he is preaching. So he is condemning other people for the same sins that he commits, but he's giving himself license to sin. He's giving himself permission to sin. He's not even trying to live according to the standard that he is that he's teaching. Okay? The difference between a person who is who's weak, however, is a person who's weak agrees that the, the standard is good and tries to practice it. And when they fall, they live a life of repentance and they try to get up again and try and, and try again, confessing their sins and trying again. They don't try to pretend to be better than anyone. They don't claim to be better than anyone. Their heart is filled with mercy and compassion because they themselves realize their own weakness and the difficulty of following the law of God. And so they find themselves able to empathize and sympathize with others who, su who suffer and struggle because they themselves are going through the same struggles. So this is someone who is weak, right? It's one thing for us to be weak, which of course God understands and he's able to lift us up and to accept us. Whereas someone who is a hypocrite is someone who is clearly being judgmental toward others about a certain behavior or action while they themselves are not even making any attempt to live by that same standard. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Okay, so here, um, God wants us to demonstrate patience and mercy toward groups of people or other individuals who are not living according to the standard, right? So when we see someone who is not living according to the standard of God, or when we see someone maybe who is sinning and, and, and actually harming us in the process of, of the sins that they are committing, what is our attitude toward them? How easy is it for us maybe to, to, to be angry toward people who have harmed us and to despise them and to hate them and to even wish their destruction or bad things to happen to them? But here God is saying, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Like God is showing compassion and patience um, and goodness toward those who are sinners because he wants to lead them to repentance. Whenever we see someone who is sinning, living a life in sin, and God is not immediately coming to destroy them, to wipe them out, it, why? Because God wants to lead them to repentance. In the, in the Gospels when um, the apostles James and John were traveling with Christ and there was a certain area where the people did not allow them to enter, James and John being offended by this, um, asked Christ and they said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven in order to destroy these people who have not allowed us to enter into their region? And Christ looking at them, he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of because the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Like when, when, when Christ sees those who, you know, one could say are his enemies, the people who mistreat him, the people who harm him, the people who do not respect him and so on, what is his response? His response is not to lash out in destruction, because of course, obviously, he has the power to do so. But he has what? Goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, because he wants those people to come to repentance. This is the genuine love that God has for all people. So here, um, St. Paul is kind of rebuking these, uh, these Jewish Christians. He's saying to them, you are despising the mercy that God is having on you, you also who are a sinner, you also who have, you know, as, as a people have been idol worshipers, you people who have rejected the prophets, you people who, s who, who actually crucified Christ, you are um, rejecting, you know, like, like you, you knowing this about yourselves, um, you are rejecting the mercy of God toward another group who, who, who is also a sinner, right? 
No, do not despise the riches of his goodness, right? Because they are in need of mercy, and so also you um, are, are, are in need um, of mercy. <coughs> in Luke 12, 47, it's <coughs> a little bit hard to read. It says this, And the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. What is, what is he saying here? What does this mean? What is the distinction between beaten, being beaten with many stripes or being beaten with few stripes? Why does he say some will be beaten with many and some will be beaten with few? Those who sin knowingly, they like they are more guilty than those who are sinning un unknowingly. Yeah, so like, what is the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles? Is the Jews knew the law, right? So they knew the God, the commandments. Whereas the Gentiles did not receive the law. Right. So when when the, the the Jews receive the law and then commit sin by disobeying, then they actually are going to be punished with many stripes. They're going to be they're going to be punished more severely because they knew the truth. They knew the law and they disobeyed. Whereas the Gentiles who would never receive the law actually would be beaten with fewer stripes. Like they would get a lesser judgment on them. So the Jews, as they are looking at the Gentiles and condemning them and saying, um, you know, you, you, you know, you people have been pagans and you've lived this life and you are not circumcised and you are not doing any of these things. Actually, what St. Paul's argument is, is the opposite. No, actually, you Jews are going to be more severely, uh, more severely punished, more severely condemned for sin rather than the Gentiles. So don't despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long-suffering on the gentiles because you yourselves are in need of the same you also are in need of the mercy of god don't believe yourself to be self-righteous but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of god who will render to each one according to his deeds okay the the Again, he's addressing the Jews here, okay? The Jews have this hardness of heart and impenitence, right? They are not repenting. They're treasuring up for themselves wrath because they are not offering mercy and compassion and forgiveness to other people like the Gentiles. So God is going to render to each one according to his deeds, okay? Again, they believe themselves to be self-righteous and they are judging others. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also of the greek but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the jew first and also to the greek so eternal life is the reward for those who seek to live in obedience to god and eternal condemnation is the consequence for those who reject God and his commandments, whether for the Jewish person or for the Greek person, right? He is trying to clarify 
that both the, st the status of both the Jewish people and the Greek people or the Gentiles in the eyes of God is the same. God is not giving any extra brownie points to the Jews because they are Jews, right? And he is not giving extra condemnation to the Gentiles because historically they have been pagan. Everyone is, is coming kind of from like, 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 like according to each individual who they are in the moment. God is, is not looking at whatever happened in the past, right? But so no one, no one should be having this attitude that I am better than the other, okay? Based on, hi like, hi for historical reasons, based on, you know, what is it that we have done in the past, our, our people, the Gentiles, or the Jews. For there is no partiality with God. Everyone will be going to be judged the same. So at all times, we should never, um, we should never believe that God is going to judge us um, based on our affiliation, based on um, what particular group we're with, based on the holiness of other people that we have attached ourselves to. God judges each of us as individuals based on our own life, and God is not partial. God is not giving extra um, grace to the Jews. He is treating everyone the same. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so who are the people who have sinned without the law? Those are the Gentiles. And those people who sin will perish. And as many as have sinned in the law, who are the Jews, will also be judged by the law. What does St. John Chrysostom say about it? He says, St. Paul here indicates not only the equality between Jew and Gentile, but also clarifies how the law has laid a burden on the Jew. This is because the Gentile is judged without the law. And the words without the law indicate that the judgment is lighter, for the law does not, does not testify against him, right? Because I did not receive the law to transgress against it, right? So even though I am committing sin, but I am, it is more excusable because I do not even know what is right in order for me to practice it, okay? So the, the, the judgment is light. In such case, the Gentile receives punishment based upon the logic of nature and reason. We speak about the natural law, the, that we are created in the image of God, and thus we have a sense of right and wrong and morality in us. But certainly that natural law does not go to the extent of, of telling us all the details of righteousness. The Jews, for, uh, the Gentiles, for instance, they didn't know that they were supposed to offer animal sacrifices to God. They didn't receive the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the details that the Jews and the benefits that the Jews received. As for the Jew, he is judged in the light of the law. In other words, he is judged according to the logic of nature, reason, as well as the law. So the Jews have the, the human conscience. They are made in the image of God. They have the natural law, but they also have the written law. What he has received has increased his responsibility. Note to what extent St. Paul urges the Jew to understand his need to see grace and pray for rescue. Whereas they are satisfied to have the law and do not need grace, he indicates to them that they need grace more than the Gentiles, since through the law their punishment will be greater. So the Jews are always attaching themselves to the idea that we have the law, we've received the law, we are the people of God, and so we are feel justified and content in our status because of our identity in God. Whereas St. Paul is saying, do not be secure in what you imagine yourselves to have your identity in God, because God is going to judge you just as much as he is going to judge the Gentile. And the only way that anyone would have mercy is not through the obedience to the law, but through the grace of God 
that he's going to come and cover our sins and forgive us our sins, not because we have the law as a guide. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Right. So it is not enough that the Jews received the law. It is not enough that they, they are the, the hearers of the law, that they have received the law, that they know the law. But who is it that is going to be justified is the one who does the law. So if the Jew receives the law and they know the law, but they do not live it, then they actually will have even more condemnation and will not be justified by it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Okay, so this is, again, the natural law, the law that's built into us, the law that's inside of us that tells us that murder is wrong, the, the law that in us that says lying is wrong. There is something in us, there is some human conscience in us that even if any, no one were to come and explicitly tell us that these things are wrong, that we just believe them and know them, that they are wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we abide by that. Of course, many people might lie and many people might, might, might steal and many people might kill. But there is something inside that says this is a wrong action. This is a wrong behavior that we are doing. And maybe even we feel guilt and shame whenever we do something that we shouldn't do. But there is something in us that says there's something right and there's something wrong, even when we fail to do what's right. You know, when we were, we were t talking in the, the Harvest meeting about uh, a part of the book, Mere Christianity, and um, Mere Christianity is written by C.S. Lewis. And in it, he is trying to demonstrate this idea of the existence of God through the natural law and through the human conscience, the, mo the moral um, conscience of, of the human being. And, and, and he makes a very interesting point. He says, if morality was completely a human construct, if, you, if morality was simply defined only by society, and by humanity, then we as human beings would create a system that we are naturally good at following, right? Like we would create a system that we are successful in. We wouldn't create a system that we break daily. We wouldn't create a system where every day I am breaking the standard, right? If it was a completely human, uh, generated, human-created moral standard, I would create one that's easy for me to follow. And then based on this human standard, every day when I go to, s to sleep at night, I can look back at my day and say, I did everything as I should. I did everything right. Okay? But there is something in us, a moral standard, that is contrary to us, that we are constantly violating, that we realize and understand that we are violating, that makes us feel shame and guilt for violating it. And, 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 and so it is not our own creation. It is something that has been given in us that we realize that we are violating it, but we, and we feel upset about it, right? So it could not have been something that we made ourselves, okay? Because we wouldn't have created such a system that we are so bad at following. So here he's saying the same, saying the Gentiles who do not have the written law by nature do the things in the law, right? So I don't have to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments in order for me to know that murder is wrong, in order for me to know that lying is wrong, in order for me to know stealing is wrong, in order for me to know that I should honor my, my mother and my father, those things are innate and intrinsic in the way that God made us to be. So for those who God has given the natural law, his judgment on them is according to the natural law. This is why God can't say, I, I judge all of humanity, 
even those who have not received the explicit law, because there is a law in them. There is, there is a law and a moral standard built into them that they can be judged according to it. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Okay? So, so our thoughts are either going to, um, when, when, the, when, when we do a certain action, our thoughts are either going to excuse us, meaning this is a right action that I did, or they're going to accuse me, saying, no, this was a wrong action. This concept of right and wrong that exists even without having the written law as a guide. St. John Chrysostom, he says, St. Paul wishes to communicate the following. I do not reject the law, but I justify the Gentiles due to it revealing that they are better and more excellent than the Jews as they practice goodness even though they have not received the law. So actually, St. Paul has turned everything upside down. You Jews who believe yourself to be better than the Gentiles because you received the law, actually you are worse than the Gentiles because when you sin, you are directly transgressing the law that you have received. The Gentiles are actually better than you. This is what St. Paul is saying. Being the recipients of the law has led the Jews to be conceited and arrogant. In this respect, the Gentiles are worthy of admiration, for they fulfilled the law through deeds and not through words which they have heard. Therefore, note how the apostle blames the Jews for that and consequently demolishes their conceit. He proclaims that Gentiles are more deserving of honor than the Jews as they have struggled to fulfill the law, though they had no law. We are all the more at, uh, astonished at the Apostle's wisdom as he reveals the prominence of the Gentile over the Jew without a direct statement to that effect. So again, he, he completely flips it on them. He goes on and says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. This is the, the secrets of men. This is the judgment. God is going to judge us according to our secrets, according to the things that are not known, that are not clear, the things that are the intentions of my heart, the thoughts of my mind, the things that nobody knows about us, that God is the only one who knows. Those are the things that are either going to um, commend or condemn us on that day of judgment. And so when God sees the situation, he does not judge according to man. He does not judge and say, well, the Jewish people are, the, are more righteous. No, actually, he says the Gentiles are more righteous than the Jews because they have done what they could without having received the law. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. What is he saying here? But he says that you know his will, approve the things that are excellent, instructed out of the law, confident that you are a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness. What is, what is, his, what is he saying? You're saying that because they receive the law, they are capable of doing these things. 
and they should like show people how it's done. Okay. Properly. Or they think they are. They think they are. Oh. Yes, they think they are. They consider themselves, right? They consider themselves to know the will of God, and they make their boast in God, and they consider themselves to be instructed, and they consider themselves to be a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor to the foolish and teachers of the babes. But he says what? Having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. What is the form of knowledge and truth? Like a really bare bones, but they take that and they think that they're supposed to be the teachers and instructors of it. What is it that the Jews were really good at? Hmm? There's a there's another microphone over here if you want. No. Yeah. Claiming to the law, like they're they're the chosen people by the law. Yeah, believing that they're the chosen people because they're the ones who received the law. They knew the law very very well. Actually, you know, like when the scribes would. Um, when the scribes like would trans would would uh, make copies right of the of the of the scriptures, there was this whole ritual that they had to do in order to do that, and and they would copy you know one letter at a time, and I think if they made more than a certain number of mistakes, they would actually f trash the whole thing and start over, um, and there was all these 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 rituals and things that had, like they took the law super 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 seriously, and when it came time to try to to, to follow the law. They would try to follow it to the letter in exactness, right? But this was a form of knowledge. It wasn't, it wasn't the real. They didn't understand what the law was about or what it was for or what God's intention was or what is the spiritual meaning of it. Because in the end, they had no compassion. They had no love. They had no, um, you know, th they had no mercy on others. They didn't understand. So they have a form of knowledge, thinking of themselves to be the teachers, thinking of themselves to be the righteous, and they base this in having received the law, but even the law that they received, they didn't understand it and they didn't follow it as God intended. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Right, All the things that you are teaching, are you falling into it yourself? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Right? Instead of looking at others, look at yourself. Right? Do you consider yourself exempt from following the law because you are, have the special status of being a Jewish person? And this gives you license to break the law and to consider it to be no big deal. But when a Gentile lives contrary to the law, that you are considering it to be a very big problem. Right? This sends a clear message to the Jews like of how much they're in need of grace. And that's really the point of this. The point of this is not to tear down the Jewish people or to consider that the Jewish people are like the worst people in the world or, or, or to condemn them because they rejected Christ. The point of this is to say, you are sinners, the Gentiles are sinners, everyone is a sinner, and so we are in need of grace. We are in need of, of salvation, right? But they, re they, they struggled with this idea of needing grace and salvation and mercy because they clung so much to the idea of, well, no, our salvation is through following the law. This goes back to the Judaizer argument that we said in Galatians because people believed that it is through the following of the law and being circumcised. This is what defines them as the children of God and not the receiving of grace from God, the salvation that comes from God.
So just as they are in need of mercy because they are sinners and do not live according to the standard, they should also extend this mercy to the Gentiles as well. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So this is a quote from Isaiah 52, verse 5. So St. Paul is going a step further. He's saying, not only are you sinners, but you, through your actions, through your behaviors, you are actually blaspheming the name of God in front of the Gentiles. Like maybe the Gentiles would have actually turned to God if it weren't for you. Like if you look at the really like the actions of the Israelites in the Old Testament, they were constantly disobeying God all the time. They were worshiping idols. Any Gentile group who would be looking at them would say, okay, yes, their, their God is, you know, does these mighty works in them and for them, but they are not thankful for that. They don't obey him. They go and they worship idols. They, they live in immorality. They, they're, they're not repenting. They are not doing the things that God is asking them to do. So why is it that the Gentiles would take their whole faith and religion seriously? Right? Th th so he's saying, you are actually blaspheming the name of God before the Gentiles. Okay? So, so again, he is condemning them. He's saying your sin is actually having a negative impact on the people around you. And of course, we can think of this us, like our weaknesses and our sin can have a negative impact on the faith of other people around us. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So he's saying you are making such a big emphasis on the idea of we should be circumcised. Well, and you're saying that unless people are circumcised, they cannot be Christian. Well, what about the rest of the law? You're breaking all of the law and you're just clinging to this one point of circumcision and say, yeah, yeah, we have to be circumcised. But what about everything else? What about all the breaking of the Ten Commandments? What about all the moral failures of the people? What about the idol worshiping? What about all those things? And then you say, oh, no, but all we need is circumcision. So again, the Jews are, um, are, are, are making it about following certain laws that they have received that they themselves struggle to follow. Okay, And so in that sense... It's like canceling the circumcision. Whatever, whatever righteousness you believed that you were receiving by being circumcised has now become uncircumcision in the sense that the circumcision is not, is not even demonstrating your righteousness in any way. Like when you, when you look at it, it's like these people are circumcised, yes, but they also worship idols, but they also uh, reject Christ, but they also um, you know, do everything contrary to the Ten Commandments. But we're circumcised. So is the circumcision really that the thing? Is the circumcision the thing that, that, that is going to make you righteous before God? And he's saying, no, it's not. It's like it's as though you have un it's though, as though you're not even circumcised. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So then who is it that is justified and righteous in the eyes of God? It is not those who are physically circumcised, but it is those who are fulfilling the law those who are living according to the commandments of god are those who are righteous and then god would consider them as though they are circumcised in the sense of that circumcision in the old testament was the the sign of being among the people of god so he's saying the gentiles who are not circumcised actually who are who are fulfilling the natural law who are living according to the natural law like it, they are greater than you who are circumcised and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So he's going even a step further. He says, not only are you sinners, 
not only does God accept the Gentiles, but the Gentiles are actually going to judge you. Like you who believe yourselves to be so righteous and that you are the judges of the world, the Gentiles <coughs> are actually the one who are going to judge you because they are more righteous than you and they have received grace. And, and, and even though they don't have the fullness of the law and don't, didn't practice it, in the eyes of God, they are more righteous because they fulfill the natural law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So this goes back to the idea of the Jews received the law, but they did not understand the law. They didn't understand the spiritual meaning behind it, or why is it that God gave it to them. They focused on these details without understanding the bigger picture and the purpose of why the law was given. Okay, so again, if a person is who is uncircumcised lives righteously, then it is as though he is circumcised, fulfilling the requirements of the law. And St. John Chrysostom speaks about how St. Paul is like a judge who wants to issue a verdict on persons who enjoy a certain rank. Like, like, like these Jews, they have a certain rank in their own mind, and he is, like, he, he is condemning them. He is issuing a, a verdict and a judgment on them. Um, so he's first stripping them of their rank, he he is he's 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 bringing them down from their loftiness. He's breaking their arrogance and their pride, making them realize that they have no advantages compared to anyone else. So that in understanding this reality and realizing that they are essentially uncircumc uncircumcised, which which you know in a spiritual sense, that they would then realize that they are also in need of salvation that they would realize that we are not going to attain salvation by our rank, our status, our cultural uh, background, um, that we are the children of Abraham. We are not going to receive salvation through this and that God is not going to judge us favor favorably just because this is who we are so that he can then, and in the next chapter, discuss what that salvation is actually needed for all people, not not just the Gentiles and the Jews are exempt. So it's it's he, this is how he's he's setting this up. He's not trying to be overly condemning, but he is wanting to break the pride of the Jews so that they are now able to listen to what he has to say next, which is that salvation is needed by everyone. And this is what chapter 3 focuses on, the salvation of all mankind. So he goes on and he says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So after he rebukes them and he says the fact that you received the law actually brought you more condemnation, all that, here he's like changing his speech. He's changing the way he's talking so that they don't misunderstand, okay? He's focusing now on discussing what was the significance of the Jewish people throughout history. Why is it that, the, as, that God chose the Jewish people? Why is it that God asked them to be circumcised? What was the greater purpose of that, Okay. Like, it's not that the God-given law was irrelevant or that it had no value or not important, but the people, when they received it, they did not receive it with obedience. So the way that God wanted them to live in the Old Testament, they did not. They did not live according to how God wanted them to live. They did not live according to the law as he had given to them. But in the Old Testament, the Jews actually were um, the chosen people of God. This is in Psalm 147.20, it says what? 
He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they are uh, they are not known them. Praise the Lord. Sorry. Ah, there it is. Okay. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So even in, in the Psalms, you're speaking about what how we have, we as in the Jews, have like, he has not dealt with any nation the same as us. He has chosen us. He has provided land for us. He has protected us. He has allowed us to, to grow. The Messiah came through the Jewish people and so on. But that doesn't mean that because God chose them for that, that they can attribute that to some special status that they themselves had. Actually, St. Stephen, um, when he was stoned, the reason he was stoned is because he, he made it clear that the Jews, even though God gave them so many blessings and, 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 uh, you know, and, and, and wanted to use them for the salvation of the world, and yet the Jews were continually obstinate, disobedient, idol worshippers, and they did not follow the law according to what God had said. Okay, but that doesn't mean that because so that doesn't mean that because they received those things that the Jews are better. So he's 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 making them understand that there was value in everything they experienced. There was value in receiving the law. There was value in being the chosen people of God. But that doesn't make you better than anyone else because actually, what did you do with what you received? You rejected it. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Okay, so he's saying, since the Jews did not obey, that does not take away the faithfulness of God. Like whatever promises that God made in the Old Testament to the Jews, even when the Jews did not, um, did not obey, that doesn't mean that God is going to back out on his promises or not be faithful to them anymore. So, so for instance, when God promised that, the Messiah would come through the Jewish people. This was a promise. This was a covenant that was made to them. And nothing and no amount of sin and, and that, that the people committed caused that promise to be of no effect or to change. It still happened, right? The, their unbelief did not make the faithfulness of God without effect. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This is a, 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 a part of an excerpt from Psalm 50 that we pray from the Agbeya. He's saying what, that when people judge God, in the, in the sense like when people look at what God has done, they will see that he did exactly what he said he would do. It's not that he became offended and so he changed what it is that he, he told them and he promised them. No, God was actually faithful and continued and carried out what is it that he said he would do? Which kind of, um, you know, makes us to understand something. So there are some promises that God gives that are conditional. And there are some promises that God gives that are unconditional. Like there are some things that, that God says, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you do not do this, then I will not do it. Like King Saul, for instance. God wanted him to be the first king of Israel. And God wanted to bless him. And God wanted Israel to be thriving and prospering under his reign. But because King Saul rejected God, God rejected him. This was a conditional thing. God responded to the actions of the people. But there are other promises that God makes that are unconditional, that, that even when we reject them, God is still going to do them. Now, maybe we don't benefit from those promises, it doesn't, but it doesn't mean that God is not going to fulfill and carry out what is it that he said. But if our unrighteousness 
Okay, so now he's going to make an argument. He's saying, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? What is he? What argument is he saying here? Let's read the next verse and maybe it'll be more clear. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So what is, what is this argument that St. Paul is making now? That if you have unconditional promises and it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter what you do, then you could do whatever you want. And why not do whatever you want? Because no matter what you do, God's still going to do his will. And when God does his will, even when we don't deserve it, then it does what? It glorifies God, right? So he's saying, if, if God is glorified, because he carries out his promises even when we are undeserving and this makes us to see that god is merciful and just and faithful why is it then that we are condemned by doing something that brings glory to god this is the this is the argument and he's saying that some people were slanderously reporting that that's actually what they were preaching and some people are saying why is it that god is going to judge us if our sin actually made god's mercy more evident right so he's saying no. This is not the, you, you know, like this is this this is this is this is a false argument. This is a false human argument. You know, um, God will judge the evil, and the people who make such argument will be condemned. This is what he's saying. Their judge, their condemnation is just. Okay, at this point, Saint Paul has made two main two main points. The first point was directed at the Jews, who accused him of demeaning the gifts of God to them, which is the receiving of the law, being the children of Abraham, and so on, um, and the circumcision. So the, the first point, he, he was addressing the Jews and, he, and, and, and who, were, who were in their arrogance, resting on the fact that they had received the law. He addressed this point and said, even though you have the law, you are still sinners, you are still in need of mercy, you should show mercy to others as well. Okay. The second point, um, he answered the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles would consider that he is encouraging them to do wrongdoing, this human argument. Are you saying then that when we sin, that we are somehow increasing the glory of God when we, when we, when, when we sin? Why then would God judge us? Why doesn't God then judge us? Uh, 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 sorry, not, not um, why would God judge us for doing evil when our evil actions actually made God look more, more faithful, more glorious? Okay, so he addressed this as well. So kind of addressing both of these groups and essentially making it clear that everyone is in need of salvation, that everyone is a sinner, and there is no one who is righteous, okay? He is now going to speak about the uh, kind of the salvation of all mankind. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So whether you are coming from Jewish background or whether you are Gentile, all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. 
They have all turned aside. They have all they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a condemnation of all people that we we are see we, we are destroying ourselves. Destruction and misery are in our ways, the path of peace we have not known. All of these are quotations from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from, from various um, Psalms uh, in the Old Testament. All these quotations he's, he's finding. So essentially he's saying the corruption of man is universal. The corruption of man is complete. Man has disobeyed God and is deserving of condemnation. So whether it's those without the written law, right, or those with the law, both are equally doomed to destruction. Okay, because we have all sinned against God, whether Jew or Gentile, all under the same judgment. Therefore, neither group should boast against the other because both are in the same place. Both are in the same boat. Both are in need of salvation. Instead of focusing on, you know, the Jewish people trying to promote the idea of circumcision and saying people who are not circumcised um, are less. Or instead of the Gentiles, like looking at the Jews and criticizing them because they are the ones who rejected the law. They are the ones who rejected the Messiah. And, and kind of fighting and warring with one another, saying, no, we are all in the same place. We all have sinned against God. We are all in need of salvation. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? So... Those who have the law, it condemns them rather than defends them. It doesn't defend them. It doesn't, it doesn't make them look good. Those who have the law, the Jews who have the law, it actually condemns them. The law makes them aware that they are sinners and does not bring justification, does not bring righteousness. It just makes them realize how far short they are of God's standard. And that's what the law did in the Old Testament. It just made them realize that they will not be justified in the sight of God because they are unable to fulfill and carry out the law that they received. That was what the law accomplished or should have accomplished in them. Instead of making them proud and arrogant because they are the recipients of the law, it should have made them actually feel the greatest in need of, of, of God's mercy because even though God told them what they should do, they were unable to do so. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So he's saying, now in the new covenant, righteousness of God is not coming from the law. The, 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 the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So what Christ brought, it's, he did not just bring more commandments or variations of the commandments, or a higher standard of, of moral living that we should live. He brought us his own actual righteousness. It is like the righteousness of God becomes imputed to us. So by uniting ourselves with Christ, we are carrying his righteousness in us, so we are therefore justified that we are considered righteous. We have the righteousness of God in us, even though we ourselves are, are sinners. 
So this has been attained not because of our own efforts, but by the grace, by the grace of God and because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So you see how the message of Christianity is so fundamentally different from a message of salvation by good works. It is a salvation and a righteousness that we receive, which is not our own. We will never be able to follow the law. We, we, we had never followed the law, the people of God. And so there is no, there, there should be no attempt to think that it is through the perfect following of the law that we have salvation because it is impossible to do so. The righteousness that we receive comes from God himself, that he imputes it to us as though we are actually the ones that are following the law, even though we are not. This is what, what it means to be justified. Justified means to be declared just, that we are just, that we are righteous, even though we are not just and righteous. But through Christ and in him, we are just and righteous. And so when God the Father looks at us, instead of seeing us as being these people who are living in corruption and sin, he sees us as being just and righteous. Even, even though we personally have fallen short of the standard of, 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 of righteousness, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that grants us fellowship with the, the, the Trinity. And in this fellowship, God grants this to us. Um, in Isaiah 46, it says, Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is, this is a prophecy. This is what Isaiah said, or what God said through Isaiah. He said, I am going to bring my righteousness near to you. Right? And, and, and I will place my salvation in Zion. Zion means Israel, and Israel means the church. So, God is placing his salvation in us. He is taking his righteousness and imparting it to us as though it becomes our own righteousness. So the work of salvation that had always been from the beginning was always the same message that God was proclaiming through the prophets that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ himself. And Christ said so in John 7. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. This is when Christ is praying to God the Father, saying, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What is it, the, the work that God did, the work that Christ did on the earth? The work that Christ did and that he completed on the earth was to bring the fullness of the righteousness of God into us so that we, having faith in him, because it says, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, have now become righteous. Completely different message than what the Jews were, were preaching. They were saying, no, you become righteous by being circumcised. You become righteous by receiving the law. You become righteous by following the law. But they were not able to follow the law. So, so God says, no, I am declaring that you are righteous in Jesus Christ, even if you don't follow the law. It's a fundamentally different message than what the Jews were preaching. Okay? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Like no matter the status, no matter their background, everyone is guilty of sin. Okay? James 2.10, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. 
And this is the point also St. Paul was making to the Jews. He's saying, well, even if you are circumcised, but you are failing to follow the other aspects of the law. And because you are failing to follow those aspects of the law, you are guilty of the entire law, right? One sin makes you guilty of the, of the whole law. And this is the same thing that St. James is saying, okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So even though we are universally condemned because of our sin, and yet the Lord, who is the healer, he gives us the remedy. The remedy for this is not more perfection. The remedy for this is not to try harder. The remedy for this is to be fundamentally transformed to receive the righteousness of God in us, right? And this was a priceless remedy. Like This is something that cannot be we could never have attained, nor can we put any value on it, because it is, it is so priceless. No amount of human effort could have achieved it. No amount of collective effort of all of humanity could have achieved this status that Christ gave to us freely. We are justified freely. It is completely free. You know, it, it brings to mind maybe the parable of the wicked servant who owed 10,000 talents to the king, his master, and when the man could not pay, he completely freed him from that debt. Otherwise, he would have gone to prison. And the man came and, he, and, 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 and asked for mercy from the king, and the king offered it to him. He said, I will, I will freely make you just, as though you owe nothing. Right? So it's like God made us to owe nothing to him. We are, we are justified. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so when he says the blood, the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross is a propitiation. What is the word propitiation? Propitiation means a satisfaction for sin, satisfying the law, satisfying the justice. The idea that the wages, so in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. This is the consequence of sin. So whenever we sinned against God in the, in the garden, the consequence was death. So death had to happen. There had to be death. And there was no way to circumvent this. God couldn't just say, well, I'll give you another chance. No. The law was that the wages of sin is death. So when we sinned, we must die. So what Christ did is he died instead of us. He, he, brought, he took the death that we deserved and he brought it on himself. He died instead of us. So he satisfied the law, which was that the wages of sin is death. This was the satisfaction. So he was a propitiation. He satisfied the law by the shedding of his blood. How do we benefit from this sacrifice that he made? through faith because we believe in him because we believe that he did this for us because we believe that he is God and he sacrificed himself for us and we believe in him it is through faith that we accept the gift that was freely given which is justification for us to receive the righteousness of God this is through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously <coughs> that were previously committed as though the sins that we had committed against God were wiped away and that when God sees us he sees righteousness okay he reconciled us with God because in the garden of eden the relationship between God and man was one of union 
right? That they, like God would walk with them in the garden. They would speak with him freely. God was present with them. There was no obstacle or separation between God and them. But after the, the fall, after sin entered into the world, that relationship became broken, okay? So the, 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 the right, when we have now been imputed the righteousness of God into us, what does this mean? It now means that our relationship with God becomes unified again because now the obstacle that was preventing us from from being in union with God in communion with him has been removed so our 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 relationship is now restored healed the way that it was originally so God is no longer holding those sins against us but we receive a cure of sin where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So you're saying, what do we have to boast about? Of this whole process of God giving us his righteousness and restoring us and healing our nature and, and, and reconciling with us, all of these things are actions that God did. Our part was to simply believe and to follow. But God is the one who did all of the work. Where can I boast? Can I boast of having received the law? Can I boast of circumcision? Can I boast of anything, any human work that I have done? There is no way to boast. There is no way to boast of being a Jew because it is not through being a Jew that I received anything that actually brings me salvation. All of the work of salvation was done by God, not by the law of Moses, but by the law of faith. The law of faith is that I believe in what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And so again, he levels the playing field for everyone. He says we are all in sin. The fact that one group received the law in the Old Testament doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add to them anything. It doesn't mean that by, by having received it that they are automatically saved or that it is through the works that they are performing in the law that they have a greater and better status in the eyes of God. No, we are all sinners. We are all in need of the grace of God. And then Christ came and he offered his righteousness to us. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So justification cannot come through the law, but by faith. Now, people will take a verse like this and, and maybe the whole subject that St. Paul is speaking about in Romans, and they will twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us doing good works. This doesn't mean that good works are not an evidence for the genuine faith that we have. You know, when St. James says, show me your faith by your works, how is it that we, when we say that we are justified by faith, what does that faith look like? Yes, the faith has works in the sense that we are, we are striving to do the works of God, but it is not those works that bring salvation. No amount of work can bring salvation. No amount of following the Ten Commandments can bring salvation. But also, I cannot just claim that I have faith simply because I read the book of Romans and say, yeah, I accept that. And that's all I do, right? Because that's also not a faith that's supported and demonstrated by works. The true faith is a faith that we are putting effort. We are, we are putting effort to live according to the faith, according to the faith that we proclaim. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So whether you are circumcised or not doesn't matter. The faith that you need to proclaim in order to have salvation is one and the same. 
Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Okay? The law being established because it's performing its purpose. What, is, what was the purpose? The purpose of God was to make known the, the extent of human wickedness. Because the law could not be fully obeyed. God, when he gave the law, he knew that the people would not be able to follow it. But it made them realize the depth of their weakness, their need for salvation, so that they would turn to God for mercy and realize that it is only through an act of mercy that they would be able to be in union with God, have mercy from him. And so that's what they would seek from him, not to be justified according to their works. So when he says it establishes the law, it establishes why the law was put. The, p the law was placed in order for us to realize that we can never follow it. To realize that there is no amount of effort that I can do to make me successful at obeying God completely. And so I am in need of God's mercy. Right? So we are not making the law void. We are confirming the reason and justifying the reason why God gave the law to begin with. That all that, the, all that God did, including the giving of the law, was all part of the work of salvation to make us realize that we cannot follow it, that we are in need of mercy of God. And so this was the purpose of the law. We are establishing the law through faith. We are, we are confirming that in our faith that God, he gave the law, it was good. But we are the ones who are not able to live according to it. So God gave us his righteousness so that we could be united with him and have salvation even though we fall short of the law. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Any questions about any of these things? I know it's a kind of a deep subject. Yeah. So what was his response to the whole we could do whatever we want if his glory is more evident when we sin? I didn't understand the connection after that to that whole section. So essentially he's saying that... Um, the if there are people who say that God is not right to condemn us for our sin because our sin demonstrates the goodness of God. So even like, for instance, when we speak about what we were just talking about. So a person could come up with the argument and say, okay, well, I receive the righteousness of God. And, and when we understand this, we see, wow, God is so merciful and he's so loving and compassionate and he's, he's, he's covering our sins and doing all these things. So the more I sin, actually it makes God look even better because look at his mercy and look at his, you know, we're glorifying him by, he, he is being glorified because people see the magnitude and depth of his mercy. Therefore, God has no right to judge me for my sin since through my sin, he is being glorified. That was the argument, okay? But of course, we know that's, that's false, you know? No, God is condemning of sin. Actually, the whole reason that salvation is necessary is because sin is condemned, right? So it is not saying that God now accepts the sin or he promotes the sin. It means that God in his mercy is not, is not judging us according to our deeds as we should, as he should, but that doesn't mean that we're actually doing him a favor or that we're not, we, we should not be judged because that our sins are actually a good thing. Okay. Any other? Okay, let's pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for all the blessings you give us. We thank you, O Lord, because you help us to understand the depth of your mercy and really how much you did for us on the cross, giving us your righteousness so that in your eyes we are justified even though we have done nothing good. We ask, O God, that you have mercy on us and you help us to overcome our sins while at the same time strengthening our faith, knowing, O Lord, that in your goodness you have accepted us and that you are transforming us and sanctifying us and uniting ourselves to you day by day. We ask, O God, that during this time of fasting, you give us strength and, the, and to, to wage the spiritual battle against the temptations that wage against us and to help us, O Lord, to be faithful to you and to continue to work, O Lord, trusting in your presence and in your life and in your Holy Spirit guiding us in our life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.